Indu Vishwanathan, EDD, has worked in the field of education for 20 years as a teacher, curriculum developer, teacher educator, and nonprofit research director. Her research focuses on immigration, education, and transnational consciousness. She examines how American education and media reinscribe colonial era biases about Hinduism, often actively silencing indigenous dharmic perspectives and expression. Indu is a co-director and one of the founding scholars of Understanding Hinduphobia, an annual conference that brings together Hindu-American scholars, students, and allies to rigorously examine Hinduphobia and its impact on Hindu lives. I first learned of Hindu, Indu's work uh, when I read a Medium piece, probably about a year and a half ago. And since then, we've had some conversations, mostly online, but this is probably one of our first official face-to-face conversations. So I'm very excited about that. Welcome, Indu. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for, for having me here. Great. So let's just jump right into it. So you were an educator um, or in the field of education for at least 20 years. What, what inspired you to pursue a, a PhD in education? Yeah, that's a really, that's a question I ask myself all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, so I started off as uh, an elementary school teacher. I taught fifth grade for a few years before I had my own kids. And then life kind of took my family to India, where I was involved. Uh, Teach for India was just starting then. And I have issues with the Teach for All sort of technocratic approach to teaching. And so I decided what better way to sort of disrupt it than, than to join it. So I joined Teach for India. Uh, and I actually ended up writing their language and literacy text for their first batch. Um, and I was their literacy professor. So I taught all the first batch of, of Teach for India um, fellows how to teach, how to read and write. And already I started to see some, some issues with how educational concepts spread globally. Hmm. Um, and I can get into that a little bit more. And I also uh, did teach ed, teacher ed work with Akanksha, which is a sister organization of Teach for India in Bombay and Buna as well. And then life brought us back to the United States. And uh, as it happens, my teaching certification had, New York State had, had expired my teaching certification. So while I was offered my old teaching position back, I couldn't take it. Uh, and I, but I was looking for something really juicy to work on. And so in the meantime, um, for at least 10 years prior, I had been involved with the art of living. That was sort of my spiritual home uh, and my place that I turned to for, for knowledge, for sadhana, for sangha, all of those things. And the art of living has um, a nonprofit or a, a community service uh, segment of it called the International Association of Human Values that has several projects. And one of those projects is was at the time called Yes for Schools. It's now called Sky Schools. And they were looking for support. And so I joined that organization, that nonprofit, as a, first as a volunteer, but very quickly saw there was some really interesting work to be done. And as happens in nonprofits, you kind of do whatever needs to be done. And all of a sudden you have a title like research director, even though you yes. only have a master's degree. <laughs> um, Been there, done that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, my work was really not conducting necessarily my own research, although I was involved in, um, in evaluating the, the effectiveness of the program for our funders. Um, but I also coordinated research for scholars from psychology, from neuroscience and from education to do research on, on the program. Now, first I kind of need to explain what the program is. So, so yes, for schools goes into schools and teaches pranayama and meditation and yoga within the sort of framework of social emotional learning. Mm -hmm. Right. And so um, it was, it was transitioning while I was there from a sort of drop-in program where they would just come in and do, you know, their work there. Um, I think it's like a 60 hour workshop, uh, into actually being embedded in schools in a way that they were training teachers in the school, how to sort of keep this going through either the phys ed program or the health program, whatever it was. And as I was working with these researchers, as I was conducting my own evaluations, I began to realize the limitations in how the West understands, um, first of all, the West understands all of these practices, but then also the limitations of, 
of how any kind of program like this can get funding, whether it's federal funding or other funding, by being um, an empirically based program, right? In order to mm-hmm. get that stamp, you need to prove that you are, that your um, work has been, or your program, or your, as they call it, an intervention, has been evaluated using a randomized control study. Right. Uh, that it's scalable, that it's generalizable, right? So, mm-hmm. so the concept of that comes from pharma. Like we see that, like, does your pill work with a control and can we mass manufacture it? Well, we know that that doesn't work for, for our practices, right? But I, we were seeing such incredible uh, effects and we were hearing such incredible things in schools from everybody because we were working with schools and teachers and parents and administrators and everyone. But all of the the data, the surveys kept coming back sort of contraindicative because people's awareness had changed, right? So when you meditate, when you have these practices happening in a school, people's awareness about their own anger, about their own stress, about everything completely shifts. And all of a sudden they have hyper awareness of things that they weren't aware of before, which actually ends up making them sort of better people or, or more pro-social people in society if you have more awareness. But that doesn't necessarily show up in a survey. I also started seeing how a lot of the surveys around these things were, you know, for instance, the, um, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has a compendium of surveys on youth behaviors. And they absolutely pathologize the behaviors of minority communities through these surveys. Oh. Okay. Which is fascinating, right? So they'll take something that is a social norm within a minority community and they'll Mm -hmm. pathologize it and say it's something that needs to be fixed or corrected. Uh And they normalize this through their surveys under the pretext of how do we measure pro-social behavior? So give me an example of what would be a behavior that's maybe common in, I know, in some sort of minority community. Uh, well, for instance, like expression of anger, right? So keeping your feelings in check in places in certain communities is seen as pro-social behavior in other communities. It's important to express that an anger is a normal emotion and it's a natural response to things, right? Mm-hmm. So that's just like one, that's just one kind of example right. that I okay. can think of okay. off, off the top of my head. So I just started seeing all of these biases. And when I would go to conferences and I would see what other, how other researchers in the field of quote mindfulness were, were navigating all this, everyone came back with the same thing. It's, it's these self-report surveys. You know, we know that self-report is inherently flawed and especially with adolescents, it's particularly flawed because they're either trying to please adults or they're trying to rebel against adults. So self-report surveys right. never work. Um, it's just natural. It makes sense. Uh, and then what ends up happening is you, you have researchers taking like cheek swabs and doing cortisol tests or, or hair samples to test stress and sending them to a lab someplace. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, well, the whole purpose of these things is greater self-awareness. And now we're asking somebody else to tell us how aware or what's happening with our, with our own bodies or our own nervous systems that didn't make any sense either. Um, I was on an interesting call once, which I found to be very revealing. So like I said, the program was housed within social emotional learning and there is an organization called CASEL, C-A-S-E-L, which has sort of designated itself the clearinghouse for social emotional learning programs in the country. And one of our funders was an organization that no longer exists um, that worked with several mindfulness and meditation programs and decided to get us all in a call with Castle to figure out how we could all become sort of official vendors and have Castle's seal of approval. So I'm, I'm on a call with a bunch of other um, directors of social emotional learning programs that all have ties to spirituality and mindfulness and meditation, whatever it is. And these castle directors are telling us how we can become official evidence-based programs and what sort of their parameters are. And at one point on the call, because I'm me, I say, well, hang on a second. We have our own metrics for understanding how all of this works. Why are these ancient traditions trying to retrofit ourselves into something that was just started a few decades ago? Why don't we 
have our own operationalization. Why don't we come together? And then all of a sudden you heard Castle's research director scrambling and saying, you know, we'd love to be a part of that. We'd love to support that. And, and then of course I pushed it and said, well, why do we even need your sample of approval? Right. Um, it's, it sounds like it's maybe the uh, yoga Alliance equivalent in that space. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's an important intersection, I think, for us to really examine uh, because what ends up happening is you have those same conversations happening in education spaces where you get watered down castle approved evidence-based programs from people who watched like a YouTube video and said, this is mindfulness, mm-hmm. right? Because that's how you get, get it to pass through because the actual indigenous programs wouldn't necessarily pass through that way. And then those programs are sort of generalized and scaled in these big ways. And they're used in kind of terrible ways to quiet and silence brown and black kids in schools. And then what ends up happening is the narrative in critical education spaces becomes mindfulness oppresses people of color. (laughs) Right. So you see how this whole thing becomes so, so, so here I was, and I was, I was observing all of this and I was working with people in, in mostly neuroscience and psychology. And I was like, well, I don't like the need to sort of answer to Western science for this. Mm -hmm. I do feel like there's something interesting in education. And, um, and I sort of fortuitously was at, um, a standardized testing forum at my children's school and my old, um, my former, not my old, my former um, advisor for my master's program at teachers college happened to be one of the panelists there. And so I I went up to her afterwards and I was like, I don't know if you remember me. I was there, you know, 14 years ago. And she's like, of course I remember you come, come up, let's talk. And she happens to be a meditator and happens to Ah, be a practicing Buddhist. Okay. So I met with her and that was sort of how the whole thing started. And so I started off in my doctoral program, this is a very long answer to your question, but that's great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I started off thinking that I was going to study mindfulness, uh, quote mindfulness, of course, uh, critiquing the ways in which it's been taken up and meditation and transcendental meditation in schools and the ways that it supports, um, teacher health and teacher flourishing. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I soon sort of transitioned out of that, I think, because I found the space to be so overwhelmingly Hindu-phobic that it was like, okay, it feels like some groundwork needs to be laid because I came across Mm -hmm. the yoga and race journals. I came across this entire sort of um, post-lineage yoga, um, yoga alliance, the entire structure became present, right? And then you had right. ed scholars then becoming or ed advisors becoming the clearinghouse for things about mindfulness and meditation. And I'm like, how are you qualified to tell me that my research on this meets any kind right. of standards? You're not an indigenous uh, steward of these practices. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I was like, okay, so I think I need to take a step back and actually examine how all of this is being held within education itself and teacher education itself before I can even do that. Mm. It's interesting. You know, our journey into that space, um, it came from a more of a advocacy angle. Um, I happened to be sitting in, uh, the Kumon lobby (laughs) because, um, back then I, I, we had a six month, um, entanglement I'll, I'll just call it that way considering um how my boys um really resisted um <laughs> my my uh, efforts to get them to do math quickly uh, but there i was in the lobby reading a yoga journal and i'm flipping through these pages they had a shloka of the month they had ohms on every corner page they uh you know, had several articles where they're talking about Jewish yoga, Christian yoga, Zen. But the one word that was so glaringly absent was Hindu. Um, They even called Parvati an Indian goddess. Now, that's not inaccurate, but it's not wholly accurate either, especially where you are talking about Jewish yoga or, you know, putting religious descriptors on these wisdom practices that are clearly rooted um, in, in the, in the wisdom traditions of the subcontinent. And so I literally had a red Sharpie in my purse. I don't know why I had a red (laughs) Sharpie, but I did. And so I, I scribbled 
a letter to the editor in that copy of the yoga journal that I had. And, and that kind of launched our take back yoga campaign that um, we were seeing more from the consumer perspective and in the business and industry of yoga, this delinking. And, and when you, when you step back, you see that it's media is almost kind of the end point. The start point is academia. And, um, and that's, and so together it ends up just closing out the space in between um, where there might be space for uh, indigenous indigenous voices, or at least those people who have come to the tradition, maybe haven't been born into the tradition, but are trying to imbibe the values and the system and, and the respect that we have um, from within the system. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's good to know that we're trying to approach these challenges from, from a multitude of levels. So I want to shift a little bit. We talked about the Hindu phobia you actually faced in these spaces. Um, and, and now you are running a Hindu phobia conference. So it was a first of its kind conference at Rutgers. What was the motivation behind your own experience, you know, besides your own experiences or in, in addition to your own experiences? Um, what was the goal? What was it? Was it met? What are your next steps? What are some of the challenges? I just loaded a whole bunch yeah. of questions. Yeah, into no one. problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say part of the inspiration, it was um, creating space uh, for student and scholar and ally voices to come together because we were being silenced in all the other spaces where we were, we are trying to speak out, you know, uh, that doesn't mean that I've, I've given up on, on mm-hmm. being a voice in those spaces, because I mean, the reality is um, in situations where I have deep relationships with people and I have mm-hmm. positive relationships with people, you know, outside the tradition, um, there is absolutely a willingness to learn and listen. It's very relationship based, yes. which we know as Hindus, as Indians, mm-hmm. that, that the the sort of most fruitful generative engagements are those that come from relationship and not from transaction. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so for sure, I, I, I have hope, you know, my dissertation committee was comprised of, uh, three different, uh, immigrant or second generation immigrant women, and they all supported my work. So it's, That's it's not that I, that my actual, I, I, I would never make the claim that my dissertation work or my own personal research was, um, that I met any particular Hindu phobic obstacles from my professors. I absolutely did not. Uh, and I think that's a really important message to send across. And I think a part of that is because, um, I wasn't, uh, pursuing this work within South Asian studies or Indology. Right. right. So, so they didn't mm-hmm. have skin in that game. And so they were actually really open to hearing reasoned, um, supported, um, explorations and, and, um, critiques and all of those things. So anyway, back to the conference. Uh, and I think part of that was, um, the inspiration behind it also was that this was not a conference for the community. This was a conference from the community to the world. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So in that way, it wasn't sort of this internal, uh, moaning and groaning about, you know, look at what, we, what we face, which I think there's, there's an important need for that. We do need that space to vent. We do absolutely need that right. space to understand and problematize and, and also study ourselves. That's very important work, but this conference mm-hmm. was public. It was open to the public. Everything is still available on YouTube, on the conference website. You know, the idea is to offer this up to the public and to, to create the space that we long for within the Academy and within all of these other spaces that we engage with. Okay. So we're not given that we'll create it. Uh, and, and as the first, as it was the first conference, as you mentioned, the goal was really to animate the working definition that we developed prior to the conference, uh, and, and bring it to life and substantiate it because, you know, uh, contrary to the suggestion or the statement made by our detractors, it's not made up. Uh, mm-hmm. we are not simply, um, co-opting anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, although we did turn to those official definitions to help guide us in understanding um, how does the public kind of understand and accept how a definition is framed 
So for sure, we definitely turned to those spaces. Uh, but the, the Hindu phobia definition that we have on our website that we really encourage everyone to, to spend some time with is grounded in the history of Hinduism and the Hindu experience. It is fact-based. Yes. It is evidence-based. It is empirically mm-hmm. validated. <laughs> all of the things right. that they're looking for, it's all there. And so the goal of the conference was to begin building our canon pulling it together in a cross-disciplinary way with allies present um, to really, to really get this work started because we haven't, you know, although I think we do have incredible work that's been done in the past by scholars to kind of bring it together with this organizing framework of Hindu phobia that is so comprehensive and to have it pulled together cross-disciplinarily is really, really important. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's not just happening in the ivory tower. It's not just a bunch of scholars in a room. I think that's also important for people to understand that this conference was hosted by students. It, um, it was based on ground realities of Hindus in the world. It was not just theoretical. It was not just archival. Uh, it was live. It is live and vibrant and based on the real lived experiences of Hindus today. Uh, and Hindus from thousands of years ago. Right. So, you know, HAF had uh, put together similarly a definition of Hindu phobia, but, and it was quite aligned mm-hmm. with what the academic definition is. And so we went ahead and adopted mm-hmm. it, especially as we, you know, it's been actually very helpful. I think one of the empowering things about having a definition and then coalescing around it from multiple angles is that it better enables us to be able to articulate when we see it. And we're able to then educate our allies about what it might look like, because that is a a big challenge for us. We already face um, misunderstanding and ignorance about the tradition. Well, now you want people to be able to, you know, wade through misinformation versus ignorant information versus accurate information. And so our glossary, for instance, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well, has adopted the uh, the framework. And I have actually found it really helpful, at least as a lawyer, to look at it. And, and what I immediately saw, because I as a lawyer, I end up breaking things down a little bit. And I'm looking at, um, at the, uh, at the definition and actually, can you share the URL for the conference so that people can look at it? Um, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. If they're interested yeah, in yeah, seeing absolutely. the definition, so the definition can be found at understanding Hindu phobia.org. Uh, and mm-hmm. there's a little thing at the top that says, what is Hindu phobia? Um, so you can click on right. that. So what I have found as a lawyer, you know, in law school, we oftentimes find whether it's a tort or a crime, you have elements. And the the two elements that really stuck out to me were both intent and impact. And it's been really helpful to look at certain instances and say, okay, what might the intent be here? Or what is the overarching ecosystem or ideology from which a particular statement or word is being uttered or an action is being taken? What's the impact? And you can really start tracing um, individual circumstances into the larger definition. Mm -hmm. And so I really encourage people to take a look at that, uh, whether you're Hindu or not, especially students, college age students, because I think it's helpful. And I'm, I'm heartened to know that it will be a continuing annual conference. So speaking of conferences, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about another conference, um, not about Hindu phobia, but literally denying Hindu phobia and arguably fomenting it. And that is the dismantling global Hindutva conference. Uh, You know, we have been uh, running a campaign right now where we wrote to the 41 universities uh, that, well, first, let me give a little bit of background. Uh, There is a conference that's set for uh, the second week of September. And um, we don't know much about who's running the conference because there are no names or individuals listed for this conference. Uh, But 
what was, I think, most jarring for many people in the community was the display of 41 logos from some of the leading universities across the United States and, and Canada. And so we've written to the 41 universities, their presidents, provosts and public relations staff to seek clarification as to whether they truly endorse this uh, conference, which it's one, first of all, denying him the phobia, but for all intents and purposes, we see it as a political event. And we've also asked that um, these universities ensure the well-being of Hindu American students. So I want to ask you as an educator and, and someone who's actually kind of looking at education at a meta level, um, what's your sense of all this? And um let me just stop there. What's your sense of all this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, first of all, I'll say that I think that these, this event, um, and I've said this before in social media is an, is, is a provocation as mm -hmm. much as it is an event or an, an article, you know, like previous things that have come out of this, this cohort of, of people. Um, so you have the Hindutva harassment field guide or manual, manual. whatever it is mm -hmm. that they call it. Yeah. Uh, you have the collective that's behind that manual. You have students against Hindutva ideology. Um, and right. it's, it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take an investigative journalist to discover. Uh, you just have to gently lift the top layer to see that all of these things are very deeply connected and intertwined. And they're just simply this sort of package of projects that are just constantly um, revealed to further embed these ideas just simply through repetition uh, under the mm -hmm. guise of being individual projects. It's actually just one big project. Uh, but, right. but because different banners keep revealing this thing, it appears that multiple people agree, right? So it's to create mm -hmm. this illusion of, of sort of mass consensus around these ideas from different aspects of society or from different communities in society. Um, I think what, can, what, uh, what I'm observing and what's obviously concerning, but what I'm observing from the perspective of, of education is that uh, as an educator is that this is a form of public pedagogy, right? So the provocation is used to trigger a community response uh, and, mm -hmm. and it's important when we're thinking about the, the Hindu community response that you have the Hindu American community's response, and then you have the Indian or the global, but largely Indian Hindu community right. response. And those are very different things, right? Because yes. as you and I both have talked about, we're a micro minority in this country as we are pretty much across the diaspora. We're a micro minority. Right. Now I'm not sure if people understand what it means to be a micro minority, but it's much, 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 much tinier than Muslims in India. Mm -hmm. Just to sort of put it into perspective, much tinier. Mm -hmm. Like if we didn't exist in the U.S. anymore, it really wouldn't ruffle any feathers. It wouldn't make a difference to us. It would obviously. Right. right? That's how yes. <laughs> that's I mean, we're like endangered. That's how tiny a minority we are now for an Indian mm -hmm. Hindu sitting in India, making a salty comment on social media. Right. Uh, to sort of yeah. get temporary satisfaction and maybe like feel a moment of glory. Um, they don't understand that that temporary reaction has a huge impact on us because those reactions are cherry picked. They're used as data. They're magnified to say, see, this is representative, not only of Hindus, but of Hindu Americans. Right now, this is the very definition of a stereotype, right? A stereotype is not necessarily not true. It's just that it's cherry picked information that's decontextualized, that's expanded to make, make it seem like it's the full truth and represents the entire community the entire area of study and repeated to the point where if you say anything to go against that, you're perceived as being delusional. Right. Right. And so that's exactly what happens. Each of these provocations is inserted into this social media space. They get a response, a reaction, often from people who don't necessarily know how to or don't understand the impact of American society and how American society would respond to something like that. Frequently based on the fact that a different kind of English is spoken and that 
that different English is intentionally misinterpreted and misrepresented. And then this group of scholars and supposedly educators are educating the public on how to read Hindus and that this is the correct way to read Hindus. And this is the public pedagogy element that's happening at a meta level across all of these provocations. So even before they've released an anti-Hindu manual, they've already released their, their anti-Hindu public pedagogy curriculum. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what do we do about that? I mean, it, it, I, I think you may bring up a really important point and I I've said this as well, that we might all be speaking or writing in English, but we're also communicating in different languages. Uh, and, and that is one challenge. I don't think that a Hindu in India will ever be able to know what it's like to be a Hindu in America. I mean, you can visit, maybe get a taste. Um, and the same way that we can visit and get a taste, um, they're fundamentally different, um, experiences. So what can we do as Hindu Americans? Um, that's a really, that's a really great question. Now, you may call this a bias because this is my discipline, but I do feel like education is a really, really huge mm-hmm. part of it. Now I have, I have really close friends of mine that are Jewish American scholars and they say that, um, and I commend them for this. They say that the Jewish American community, um, has intentionally put so much, um, attention and, and labor and their own, um, voice into education. There's a disproportionate number of, uh, and I'm not saying this in an anti-Semitic way. I'm saying this out of admiration sure. because they need to have them there. There's a disproportionate number of Jewish American scholars in education so that, and, and even then you see a lot of anti-Semitism happening in, in educational yeah. uh, discourse. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But we don't have that. We think that um, Adhikara comes from prestige and not from disciplinary expertise. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's not actually how we actually think that's us buying into a sort of American dream nonsense or, or capitalist dream mm-hmm. nonsense. We don't actually believe that when you look down back to back to our roots. But, you know, when I be, decided to I, I left finance to become a teacher, I actually used to be an economist. And um, that wasn't necessarily seen as like a power move. <laughs> right. Right. But, you know, <laughs> how much could I have done as as not to detract from economists, but, but I, I feel like I can do so much now as an educational sure. scholar that I wouldn't be able to do if I were sitting in, in an investment bank right now, right. No matter how much money I might've acquired. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's a huge shift for us to consider, you know, um, there's a lot of understandable, um, concern about the fact that these NEH grants have been given out, um, to yes, these massive NEH grants have been given out to professors to write about Indian history. We're just as eligible for those grants. We just don't have enough of us in the humanities applying for them. There are student grants as well. We just need more people in the humanities applying for these things. So, so I think really engaging in these spaces and having more of our voices there asking, you know, nothing about us without us to borrow from the disabilities movement slogan, you know, nothing about us without us. They're, that's exactly what they're doing is they're talking about us without yes. including our voices. So how do we address the challenge? And, and this could be a podcast on its own. So, so maybe we can just touch upon it and then save it for another uh, conversation. But there are people from the subcontinent in these mm-hmm. fields. But very often they are the ones who are behind things like the dismantling global Hindutva conference mm-hmm. or behind things like the Hindutva harassment field mm-hmm. manual. It's, it's our, our own eating our own mm-hmm. in many ways. And here they are promoting the very colonial narratives mm-hmm. and ways of seeing mm-hmm. uh, in a, a group of indigenous people, what, what do we do about that? Um, I think because I am an academic, my inclination is, is not to try to silence anybody, right. Um, is to add more, right. So if the only Hindu voice that's being represented in academia is saying this thing, then that's not 
like truly an intellectual space, right? Mm -hmm. What can we do about their voices? I think we just show up with receipts. Like they're, they're straight up denying genocide. That's a historical, it's absolutely a historical. So, you know, to your point earlier about our definition, um, the fact that we include genocide in our definition Mm -hmm. of Hindu phobia is key, right? Because if you're denying Hindu phobia, you're denying the fact that Hindus have gone through genocide, have experienced genocide and and ethnic cleansing and and targeted persecution. Um, And so I think, uh, I think that's why going back to those, to the way in which Hindu phobia has been operationalized is really, really important because we can animate each of those things. I do think it is an absolute waste of our time to continue debating the etymology of the term. Thank you. <laughs> if I see, please call it Hindu Missia or Hindu Dvesha or whatever. I mean, I, I just, I don't understand. I think it's this conflation of argumentativeness with generative, purposeful, intellectual debate. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that people need to remember that an actual you know, people will say, oh, but it's, it's a part of our tradition to debate. Well, actually, when you look at that tradition mm-hmm. of debate, before you even enter the debate, you understand the other side's assumptions. You understand where they're coming from. You understand their intentions. You understand everything about what they're saying. And you clarify yes. <laughs> with them that you have properly understood what their assumptions and what their definitions are before you even begin to debate. But if people are just beginning with, well, you're using phobia and it's not an irrational fear. Honey, I have a million things to argue with you about, but if you're not going to do me the respect of actually understanding what it is that we're saying, then this isn't actually a debate. This isn't actually intellectual discourse. This is you just being argumentative. Right, right. No, I 100% agree. I don't know how many times... You know, I'll whether it's on social media or elsewhere, you all should do X, Y, Z, whatever it is. And it will take me 10 seconds to go to our website, find the link of where we did it probably six years Mm -hmm. ago and share it again and say, how about Mm -hmm. do a deep dive? And then I'm very open to ideas and, and constructive criticism. And, you know, because advocacy and even just life in general is a constant learning process and, and ideas evolve situations evolve, And, and so you have to constantly be um, uh, of course grounded in, in certain core values, but, uh, but kind of reading the room, seeing what's there and also knowing what your goal is, who are you talking to? What are you trying to achieve? What is the way they're going to see your arguments? These are all kind of um, skill sets that we just get so busy sometimes in, I don't know, details (laughs) that we miss the big picture in some sense. And this is, you know, what we call something um, becomes more of the focus as opposed to what are we calling out? What are we up against? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You know, Um, I I will say our community, this is not unique to our community. This is what, you know, yes, it's none of these things. None of them are, you know, the, 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 the subset that you mentioned in academia that is throwing us under the bus. Every community has that subset. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, um, that was a, 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 a study done in the 1930s by an educational scholar, the miseducation of the Negro about how uh, African-American teachers were complicit in extending mm, racist right. policies in schools to black children. Right. So this is not this is mm-hmm. not unique to our community. It's not a flaw of our community. It's actually a, a colonial vestige. So. I think um, I think I'd like to see less uh, diagnosis of people by armchair psychologists uh, and more solutions. Uh, I think that would be. And I also, you know, I have to remind myself periodically that uh, of that, you know, I forget the exact phrasing, but um, sort of you're rarely corrected by people who are doing more than you. I like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I really like that. I want to shift a little bit of the focus. You know, we've talked about uh, Hindu phobia and this this pedagogy that 
I don't want to even say that it's emerging. It's actually been there, but now it's kind of more out in the open. Um, I certainly remember as a undergraduate student and I have a religion degree and, and reading some of the works of back then, Wendy O'Flaherty, and now when everyone knows her, she's gone back to her maiden name, uh, Wendy Doniger and uh, thinking, what is this, you know, and the impact that it had on me because, you know, I had grown up in an age where Temple of Doom or 60 Minutes mm-hmm. and their, you know, weekly um, episodes on all things wrong in India uh, was kind of the highlight. And then, and then the source of teasing and bullying or like, you know, looks of, of, of shock at, you know, at, oh, that's your people that um, it really impacted me as a student. And I know you've been doing a lot of work with college students. So what is the impact of things like the harassment guide, things like this dismantling global Hindu um, or denying Hindu phobia? What impact does that have on students? Because college is such an important time of self-exploration, mm-hmm. of pushing boundaries, of hopefully having an environment that is conducive to open inquiry where you pick up the skills of uh, disagreeing with people um, or, or dealing with difference. Um, But these, these things that are being pushed by academics or I guess scholar activists as they oftentimes self-define themselves as uh, is being pushed by people that they're answered, that students are answerable to. So what are you seeing amongst students and um, are there any shifts? Because I feel like all of this has really come to heads over the past year. It feels like maybe a little bit longer. No, it absolutely has. I think, I think the big shift was August, 2019 Um, Mm -hmm. massive shift then. I would say probably the the biggest shift and the one that I'm putting the most attention on is that uh, Hindu students have had enough and uh, they're grounded in their tradition. Uh, even if they are not fully sure of all the facts, they are now asking for the facts. They're asking for resources. They're collaborating. They're creating incredible media. They are, um, learning how to advocate and speak in ways that are really understood. So it's not combativeness. It's not debating with the professor in class. Uh, It's actually engaging proactively in spaces and in really creative spaces. I mean, I, I have finally uh, was made the the decisive move to take on three youth mentors so that I know how to engage in these spaces because they know so much more than we do about how to engage in these spaces. And and if I want to be effective and if I want to be an effective professor or teacher educator, I need to know how things work and how they land because I'm from the previous millennium. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We age quickly. We really do. We really do. My, my 14 year old yesterday was like, why are you always a year behind on everything? Um, I hear yeah. it too. I get some, uh, truth, yeah. truth yeah. nuggets exactly. all the time. So, so I would say that is that there's this beautiful, uh, and I would say very, uh, authentically dharmic Hindu, um, adaptation to the current moment with the youth that is actually mm-hmm. really exciting to see because you see this enlivening of dharmic spirit with the youth. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, I'm just happy to be able to be close to uh, and mm-hmm. to see. So no, that's yeah. Fantastic. So that's absolutely a huge part of it, you know. And even with this, you know, what's happening currently with this um, political rally that's camouflaged as a conference? Um, yes, you see the students really taking this on it in in ways that. Um, Again, I think um, enliven dharmic spirit, which is um, going, uh, approaching administrators as students and asking about this Mm -hmm. and asking to have their Mm -hmm. voices heard and included in the spirit of inquiry, in the spirit of intellectualism, because ours is an intellectual tradition. That's right. And that's why our students are engaging in these ways, because they're enlivening that dharmic spirit. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think that's really 
powerful to see. I think that's something that people, you know, people around the globe have taken note of the fact that this is absolutely being led by our, by our youth. So there's that aspect of it. And I think as a result of that, you have, you know, you probably have the youth versions of these South Asian scholars. You have South Asian students Mm -hmm. who have um, been, have bought into, have drunk the Kool-Aid and they're, they're a part of this stuff, the Sahi students. And then I think you probably have, as we, as you do across society, a larger number of folks sitting on the fence, observing and wondering. And I think this is where the ways in which the youth have taken this up is really powerful because they're, what I see is that their goal is to really reach those fence sitters. They know that um, the post Kool-Aid or the Kool-Aid bunch is not really going to shift because they've bought into this, this ideology, their ideologues, right? They're not really going Mm -hmm. to shift. That's their religion now. Um, but the folks who are sitting on the fence were like, wait, hang on a second. What they're saying about Hinduism doesn't really resonate with my experience, or it seems to exaggerate parts of it or something, but what do I have on the other side? And previously, I think the other side was very individualistic home practices of Hinduism, you know, or very religious, but not very socially readable, um, Hindu Mm -hmm. American life. And so I think that, that that shift is kind of, of happening. It's, it's a really, it, it's something that I think uh, we as adults should be looking at closely too, because I think so much space is dedicated to uh, trying to convince the opponents that we forget about the silent majority. Yeah. And they're the ones who are watching. And, and that's where, how we go about advocating for these, um, for things that are important to us or defending ourselves against things that, um, are wrong or paint us in a negative light or are inaccurate, uh, I think speak louder the way in which we're doing this than, than what we're saying sometimes. And, and that's what I've also found with, um, some of the social media posts and my conversations, um, with, some of these um, young adults, they're so confident, um, far more confident than I certainly was at that age. Um, and so it, it is truly inspiring to I see. Think so I think so. And I think also a part of it is that they're approaching it as education, right? So it's not like I'm trying to convince you or they're trying to convince everyone of their point of view, you know, and, and I do this as an educator is not that I'm trying to say, this is what it, this is the truth. It's what happens when we look at this you know, phenomenon or this history or whatever it is through this lens, what do we see that we Mm -hmm. don't see otherwise? And how does that inform how we walk through the world and what we're, we, you know, how we're making decisions about things. Um, and I, I I do see in this, I don't think this just applies to the Hindu community. I do see people growing increasingly frustrated with the ideological far left because it's just the flip side of the far right, you know, and, right. and I, I do, I do see that more people in the silent majority, as you described it, are feeling not only disheartened, but disenfranchised because it is just Absolutely. as ideologically driven as sort of how we would might, might characterize the white supremacist extremist right. Um, right. Absolutely. So we've, we've gone almost an hour, so I'm just going to, um, ask you one final question. Um, but what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that question. Um, I am currently working on my own manual. Uh, oh, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's what I hope to, what I hope to be a, um, I, I didn't write the manual as a rebuttal. I'm not writing the manual as a rebuttal to anything because I refuse to center that nonsense stuff. Right. <laughs> uh, so it really is an authentic resource for students and parents taking into account that the majority of parents are immigrants. Um, it's, it's, it's hopefully a very helpful resource for students and parents to identify and understand and unpack and learn how to articulate uh, the Hindu phobia that they're experiencing and seeing and how to, how to move forward from there, what to do from there. And so I'm hoping that that gets launched sometime in the coming weeks. Uh, I've I've just put, uh, some heat and some pressure on myself and that's good. I'm going to just by saying that here. So, uh, I'm going to use that to my advantage. So that'll come out. 
And I, I really do hope to, to bridge this space of, um, taking on this work in academia, continuing to, um, advocate for more voices, more Hindu voices, more plurality of voices, um, in the academy, from the academy around Hindus and Hindu phobia and Hindu life. Um, not just limited to that, but certainly that I think it's a really important lens. Um, yeah. And then I don't think I would ever qualify myself as an activist. I believe in activism, but I, I do think that my I'm deeply rooted in in the space of being an educator. And so I think my my work will always be grounded, whether I'm formally in the academy or not, will always come from the spirit of inquiry and dispassion. I think that that is really important to, to doing educational work. Well, this has been so nice to, to finally have a extended conversation with you and one that we'll be able to. <laughs> and one that we'll be able to share with our audience. If people want to follow you, where can they uh, on on social media? Where's the best place to read more from you? So uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Indumati37. I am vaguely on Instagram at Indu37. Uh, I do have a public Facebook profile, but I, I hope to be launching my own website actually around the same time as the manual. So you'll hear more from me about that. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And I wish thank you the you. best. Same to you. Thanks, so. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hindoamerican.org slash donate. And before you go, a quick message. The Hindu American Foundation proudly supports We Can Do This, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services nationwide COVID-19 and vaccine education campaign. Our community has been hit hard by COVID-19, and many of us need help in getting educated about how we can get vaccinated. Our organization is working hard to ensure our community has access to important information in our fight against COVID. Learn about COVID-19 vaccinations and get help scheduling your vaccination at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Thank you.